Sparks 538 Science Podcast. I'm science editor Blythe Terrell. In our last episode, you heard me, along with Maggie Kurth-Baker and Dr. Kim Tallbear, discussing The Social Life of DNA, a book by Dr. Alondra Nelson, and issues related to DNA and genetic genealogy. Now, today we have Maggie Kurth-Baker interviewing Dr. Nelson herself about the book. Enjoy. Well, thank you so very much for for joining us for this conversation. Um, like as I told you, we we really liked the book and we really enjoyed having a conversation with Dr. Tallbear about it. And I wanted to, I guess, sort of start off a little bit by asking you about, like you do a good job in the book of explaining why you think this is an important issue in this idea of ancestry and what DNA can and can't tell us about who we are. And I'm curious about why you thought this was important right now. Like, why did this really speak to you when it did and not earlier or later? You know, it, I'm just kind of curious about what the timing meant for you. Sure. That's a good question. So, the you know, I began the project in, in 03 when the industry is just really taking off. So 03 is four or five years before we get even 23andMe, which has really come to stand in for the direct-to-consumer um, genetic testing industry. So I was actually just interested, I think, as a lot of people were, about the emergence of a new form of, of sort of consumer practice, identity practice. Um, and it, it was through the evolution of the project that it came to mean something more. So, you know, I thought I was interested in um, quite essential questions about people's identity. And I was interested in maybe the transformation of identity um, that would take place through the use of direct-to-consumer genetic ancestry testing, much like um, the hilarious but very reductionist Ancestry.com commercials that are on TV now, you know. So I thought, <laughs> you know, I thought I, right. I, you know, I used to wear a kilt and now I, you know, I used to wear lederhosen and now I'm supposed to be wearing a kilt. Um, but I came to see, because I spent a decade on this project, um, how people sort of be began to do different things with the test. So the timing, the answer to your timing question is about having a kind of longitudinal approach to the project. So if I had stopped doing the project, say, at two th in 2005, I think I would have just said, okay, so people, you know, use these tests to change their identities or sort of add more other dimensions to their identities. And it was the, in the course of talking to more people over time um, that I came to see that the tests were doing other things in the world. And then it became... Um, part of the longitudinal piece, when you get a decade into a new industry um, that felt like in the beginning it might have just been a fad, you know, my question also as a researcher became, why is it so sticky a decade in? So, you know, why didn't it go? We, you know, we had earlier roots kind of um, fad. So we had a kind of late 70s fad with Alex Haley, Alex Haley um, which sort of rose and didn't totally disappear, but... Um, it it sort of plateaued, and this just keeps rising. Um, and so that also led me to ask, you know, what else is going in going on here besides the identity piece? And then I would go, you know, back to my conversations with people. I had iterative conversations with people about their experiences over time, um, and came to find that there was uh, other things happening, and this other stuff um, is what I call in my work reconciliation projects that there. Are, endeavors or, you know, attempts to take the identity piece, which is where people began and which brings a lot of people to the practice of genetic ancestry testing. But then it becomes about bigger sort of often kind of historical 
um, world historical political issues in the world. I'm curious about, you know, from from your book, it really seemed like Rick Kittles, who runs African Ancestry, has an idea of this sort of changing meaning and these reconciliation ideas. But I'm curious about whether you think the industry as a whole sort of realizes this bigger picture that it's a part of. I would say yes and no. So I think that the it's certainly not. I, and I think that if the industry knew this, the industry would market this as part of what it does. And um, so I, I think the industry has not quite made its that turn yet. Um, uh, so I would say no to that extent. And I think, but maybe that's just around the bend. I mean, I do think it's something, um, it's something valuable about what these tests can do potentially. Um, so no, mostly, but I think yes, in the sense that, you know, some of the, the sort of framing that we get around direct to consumer ancestry testing is about the fact that we're all related, right? So they're often, um, individuals and, you know, consumers and companies are often telling a story about how the test will tell you about, you know, potentially people in your own family tree, but also tell this bigger story about, um, you know, human population genetics and about the preponderance of, of, you know, evidence suggesting that, you know, humankind is all related. So that's not exactly getting to a place of the kind of um, social political uses um, that, that I kind of bore down um, on in my book, but it, it it sort of gestures towards that that bigger significance. The way you're talking sort of about ethnicity and what these tests can and can't tell us about our personal ethnicity versus you know the ethnicity of humanity um, reminded me of a phrase that I've heard you use in other interviews, inferred to be as a way of talking about what ethnic group yes. the test assigned people to. I'm curious about why you picked those words and when you say inferred to be about DNA and ancestry, what are you trying to convey with that? Because there's, there's a lot in here that, you know, I knew but hadn't really, for lack of a better word, grokked about like what <laughs> what these DNA tests can and can't tell us. And it was really kind of mind blowing to me to sort of understand the limitations yeah, grok is such a good <laughs> verb. Good word. Um, <laughs> so, huh, gosh, you know, where to begin? I mean, I think that I, I use inference because, you know, scientists use inference. I mean, they're very, um, in, in many cases, very humble about what they think various techniques can tell us about the past or about ancestry or about identity or about family. Um, and, uh, you know, it has been the case that in, in, in some settings where I'm um, with mostly uh, genealogists that people get upset about the use of the word inference because they say, no, this is absolutely true. And inference doesn't mean it's true, but it means, you know, given probability, given, you know, constraints and, you know, about what we can know about the past, for example, in this case, you know, this is our best guess. And that's often a pretty robust guess, but it's still an inference. Um, so I use inference because, in part also, because I've been doing this project for over a decade. And so over the course of that time, you see how the databases get bigger and um, get more robust. You see how companies go and scientists, uh, human population geneticists go from thinking, you know, eight or 12 genetic markers is, you know, a very solid way of inferring identity to, to 24 markers over time. And so inference also suggests that it's something that's, uh, you know, it's, um, it's a science that's in process and in motion. Inference for me also is important because we don't, you know, the things that we we sort of um, 
the, the sort of standards that we use when we talk about there being high quality gold standard science are not available to us in direct to consumer genetics. So, um, you know, the companies hold all of their databases uh, as trade secrets. Um, and so they're proprietary databases. They're not in this age of open source, open access. Um, the companies don't share their databases with each other. And so a consumer has to, um, y- you know, take the company's word um, that, you know, their algorithm does what it does and that it it's used in a database that's supposed to contain what the company says it contains. Um, so inference also uh, um, is used, you know, I use it to suggest that um, not only can we not have um, all of the possible information in a statistical world, or in a probabilistic world, but you can't have all of the, all of the information as a consumer um, when the companies uh, won't share it. Yeah, Dr. Talbert is saying that like she had met people who had gotten the test from multiple companies and got just wildly re- different results that they then kind of had to figure out a way to synthesize. Exactly. So that's, you know, as a researcher and, you know, someone who's interested in human behavior, that process of synthesis, when people get lots of different results, is actually really fascinating. Um, and they sort of engage in all sorts of, you know, narrative storytelling to, to make that the case. Um, but, you know, I think also what's happened in recent years is that, um, one of the, I think one of the wonderful things about genetic ancestry testing is that it really, you know, is an entree for some people to think about genetics and science who might have never thought about it before. So it becomes this kind of like a threshold drug, you know, it becomes this threshold for, for people to, to start reading nature and nature genetics and science and, you know, uh, to really um, have this moment of opening onto often a kind of, um, um, self-taught, you know, science literacy um, that is consistent with, um, you know, a kind of um, citizen science, you know, way of being in the world. So, you know, genetic ancestry testing, um, the direct-to-consumer testing is also on this same kind of social domain with the quantified self and with open access and with, um, you know, citizen science. All of that's happening all around it. And I think are, these are vectors that are sort of pushing on, on what it means and does in the world. Um, but so, you know, so people do get lots of different answers from different companies because they make different mathematical assumptions and because they have different reference databases. Um, but increasingly, um, consumers are... Uh, the savvy ones that that geek out, as I say, are, are taking their test results and you know uploading them to these third party applications that allow them to have a role in sort of saying you know kind of adjudicating or judging the legitimacy of the tests and the legitimacy of different companies. Um, so that's also happening alongside um, uh, you know the sort of efflorescence of, of all these different companies. I wanted to talk a little bit about the sort of the functioning of these companies in the context of identity, because they're, you know, you're you're talking about these corporate structures that are not transparent. And you're talking about a corporate environment where companies go out of business and have to sell off their assets. And we're also talking about an identity environment and a social and racial environment where DNA can be used in very different ways that have very different meanings. You know, I was thinking particularly about that colleague that 
Dr. Kittles kind of had to separate himself from because the colleague wanted to do forensic work that Dr. Kittles felt was actually detrimental to the communities he was trying to help. And so I wonder, like, when you give your DNA to these companies and one of them goes out of business, as many did in the course of your study, what happens to the DNA that you gave them? You know, can you give your DNA to somebody thinking that it is just going to be telling you about your ancestry and because of, you know, corporate bankruptcy proceedings end up with your information being used to inform a police database somewhere? Sure. I mean, I think the potential is there. I, I, you know, I mean, I think that the, you know, the honest answer is in most cases, we have no idea what happens to the data. So, um, hmm. you know, we I write a little bit about a company called Trace Genetics that was um, one of the pioneering companies that um, was uh, noted for specializing in quote unquote Native American DNA, uh, which was acquired by a, a bigger company when it went out of business. And so presumably that bigger company um, you know, part of the appeal was to get all of this, you know, fairly rare um, Native American DNA into this larger company's database. But, um, you know, I can African Ancestry, the company that I write most about in the book, um, uh, actually throws away the tissue um, and then doesn't also keep the keep the data. So there is for a lot of companies, you know, um, I think a, a very sensible iterative process in which they you send in your sample, um, you know, the, the tissue, the saliva becomes data, um, and they both analyze the data, and then the data also becomes potentially part of their reference database, which I think is, you know, mathematically smart and, you know, it makes business sense as well. Um, African Ancestry doesn't keep any of the data at all, Um, you know, so it's not surprising a few years later that Rick Kittles would say, you know, when we're creeping into the criminal justice system, I don't want to be a a part of that. I mean, he, from the very beginning, um, he's always... Uh, been a figure who's been trying to understand the particular potential dangers that genetic analysis of any type proposed for, um, you know, marginalized communities in particular. Um, we know now uh, that 23andMe is using um, the data uh, that they take in from their consumers to do um, pharmaceutical testing and um, healthcare uh and looking for seeking sort of pharmaceutical um, applications and patents. But I think, you know, the vast majority of the other companies, we we don't quite know what happens to the information. Um, and for, you know, many people I spoke to, it doesn't matter. You know, and this is part of, of when the um, citizen science sort of framing, I think, is often evoked. You know, people will say, well, I'm participating in this bigger project. This is a also a, um, a narrative that comes from the National Geographic Project which is, you know, you're participating in this larger scientific research project to map all of human population migration over time. Um, so there's a sense that there, that people are, you know, submitting their genetic samples for a greater good, a kind of common good or, or global good. Um, but, but we really don't know. And we, there's, you know, there are a few um, examples that we know of. There's probably lots we don't know about in which um, there are, these kind of lines blurring between, um, y- you know, f- 
health genetics and ancestry genetics or ancestry genetics and, and genetics in the criminal justice system, um, you know, such as the the case with Ancestry.com. They had a cold case uh, a couple of years ago that was widely covered in the press. Um, and they looked at a, um, they had a, um, a sample uh, that had genetic markers that were shared with a, a family surname, Usri, U-S-R-Y. And there's an Usri family Y chromosome ancestry project. And so they um, used that, uh, you know, uh, that that was put online for the common good, like let's help all genealogists, people who might maybe be my potential relatives, to find each other if they have these Y chromosome markers. And in this case, turned out to be you know was used unsuccessfully by um, a local police authority to try to to solve a cold case. Um, so it didn't help in the end, but it suggests to you how um, forms of DNA information, if not the data themselves, moving from company to company, but in a climate in which People are um, engaged in citizen science and um, an ethic of, you know, open access and are, are literally uploading their markers, uh, you know, online. Um, they can be readily found by people wanting to use them for other purposes, if not, you know, even if they're not circulating amongst companies. That is really interesting to me because I... When I was reading sort of the part of the book where you talk about the background of your own connection to ancestry finding and watching Roots for the first time as a kid. And there's a part in there where you talk about how watching that movie made you feel this connection to history and this sort of empowerment and then going the next day to school and having all of these white kids calling you Kizzy in this mocking, insulting way. And it really struck me that this had implications for the way DNA is used as well, that there is this space where this same thing can be really empowering and really detrimental and it can just get twisted back and forth without people having a lot of control over what happens. Yeah, that's such a good point, Maggie. I mean, part of that is just about the way identity works, um, which is this sort of two-sided, you know, it's kind of this Janus face thing or this sort of two-sided coin in that, um, you know, on the one hand, you know, I'll go back again to the Ancestry.com commercials, you know, you take a test and you're like, oh, I, you know, Lederhosen is wrong, I should be wearing a kilt. Um, So, you know, that's the, 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 the individual, like what people think that they are. But of course, and particularly for um, African Americans and folks of African descent, there's a, another piece of identity that's what, you know, which um, involves how people in the outside world look at you. Um, and so it's always this sort of toggle between who you say you are. So, you know, I, this is not true of my genetic analysis, but I, you know, I could say, you know, I got genetic analysis that says I'm 80% European. Um, well, you know, I'm an, I look like an African American woman. So to be out in the world is not going to change that necessarily. So that's one way of thinking about it. And I think, you know, also with the, the roots phenomenon of my childhood, I think really should have, um, suggested for us about the contemporary moment um, was the ways in which stories about genealogy and about ancestry really make history personal. So, um, you know, the root story was not about my family. It was not about me. It was about, you know, the, the subtitle of Roots is the saga of an American family. So it's this, uh, you know, using an individual case study to talk about larger sort of historical currents um, uh, in the world. And so what is, so 
I think, powerful about genealogy is that these things that feel very distant in time, like the history of racial slavery in the Americas, actually feels very present. So to be called in the schoolyard Kizzy by my friends was both a kind of misidentification, but also a kind of shared understanding that this history was our history hmm. at the same time. Yeah. It's it's complex that way. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, I, I'm also curious. So talking with, with Dr. Tallbear, we had like a really interesting conversation about how herself and m- most of the Native Americans that she knows don't really understand why anyone would really be into this. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it that like from from their perspective it's just like, well yeah, I, I guess we could go get our DNA ancestry done, but why? And meanwhile, you know, black Americans are super excited about this and white Americans are super excited about this and that made me wonder whether I'm looking at this from a super American perspective and does this does this technology have as much relevance outside the U.S. as it seems to have in the U.S.? You know, when you're talking about when you're talking about uh, countries in Africa or countries in Europe where there hasn't been as much out migration in, at least not over like the long term historically, do people care as much about these kind of tests? Yeah, it's a, you know that's such a great question. Um, so you know, one answer is that. Uh, you know, that I, I, I argue that people bring aspirations to the practice of genealogy. And so for Native American communities that might have a deep oral tradition about heritage and ancestry, or who might have other kinds of ways of thinking about what kinship means and find, you know, genetic ways of thinking about ancestry and kinship not that interesting. Um, you know, I think genetic ancestry testing is potentially not powerful or useful, you know, precisely as um, Kim Tallbear suggests, and her work is, is really terrific in illuminating that. Um, but if you look at other communities that can't, you know, say in an oral tradition or a written tradition, um, go back, you know, six, eight, 12 generations, um, because, as you say, of out migration um, of you know the uh, you know the sort of trafficking of, of um, Africans and the slave trade um, because of early 20th century migration from you know Western and Eastern Europe. Let's say um, if people don't have the ability to 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 go back farther in time and moreover feel unmoored from whatever that place of origin is, and and let's be clear that places of origin are also often deeply romanticized. But people you know if you can't feel connected to that genealogy is one way to to do that, both the genetic and the and the kind of traditional genealogy. Um, so, um, so that's you know part of the answer. Um, but I think it's also the case that African Americans and other Americans, you know, part of it is about being. Um, a relatively wealthy society. Um, so to do this, uh, you know, you have to have, le- you know, extra income. You have to have income that you can use that doesn't have to be used for food or to pay the gas bill. Um, and, you know, you've already, you, you know, you can pay for movies. Like it's actually a kind of, for many people, something extra that they do. You know, it's a kind of leisure pursuit or an entertainment pursuit. And so, um, you know, I think that there's something about, you know, th- 
the U.S. being a relatively wealthy society, that society that makes it possible here as well. So one thing I will, I was just, I was recently um, in the Gulf um, about uh, a month and a half ago, and where uh, I learned that genealogy is widely popular, um, even though many of the the Arab communities have long oral histories about their families. Uh, there is also, um, uh, you know, an investment in genealogy, particularly to genetic genealogy, to link to Muhammad, um, and that people get special societal rights and privileges if they can lay claim um, through conventional genealogy and now increasingly genetic genealogy uh, to the line of the Prophet Muhammad. Um, and there are also kind of tribal identities that give one um, certain sort of privileges um, uh, and, and different um, Gulf societies. So, you know, it's, it, it, but again, it's, um, you know, it's, it's genealogy always um, is a, a tool or a kind of lens on the contemporary world or the present as well as much as it is about the past. And it's only makes sense if it allows us to do things in the present and what, you know, so linking to Muhammad gives us things to do in the present, um, being able to link to, you know, potentially a pre-slavery identity for an African-American allows them to make identity claims, to make political claims um, in the contemporary moment as well. That also made me think about something I think you called asymmetrical exchange, where a lot of this DNA analysis is sort of based on an assumption that the populations that you are matching yourself to haven't changed during that time, right? That like, you know, we're... (laughs) In order for Isaiah to Washington to connect himself to Sierra Leone, he has to assume that the population of Sierra Leone now looks like it did 300 years ago. And that may or may not be true. That's exactly right. I mean, there, you know, the thing about the reference database as a statistical artifact is that, you know, it tries to hold constant in time. Um, you know, a category of people or categories of people, and it tries to create and it constitutes or creates categories of people, ethnic groups, tribes, haplotype groups, um, using statistical methods. And so that, you know, in the case of Isaiah, you know, I during the, the, the you know, the era in which um, Africans were trafficked to the Americas, there was not a nation state called Sierra Leone. Um, and so, you know, not only did that actual place not exist, um, you know, what genetic and ancestry testing can account for is, you know, how and whether and when people moved um, and whether the people who are in contemporary Sierra Leone um, were actually in Niger or the Gambia that we call, you know, states we call Niger, the Gambia today and sort of move there. Um, so there's a lot we, we can't know um, and, you know, we can't possibly know, again, to go back to the word inference, um, uh, that we, that's just suggested. Um, and, but still, you know, I think that what the preponderance of my evidence, of the evidence in, in the book and the ethnography suggests is that people sort of go with that. You know, they, they will often be, you know, say, uh, you know, I understand the history. I know this can't possibly be, um, you know, a hundred percent accurate, but it's, the best information I have right now. And based on that information, I'm going to do all of these things in the world. I'm going to travel. I'm going to do philanthropy. Um, you know, I'm going to take up, um, you know, the cause of reparations and these sorts of things. How do actual Sierra Leoneans, you know, a- 
actual people from Niger. Like, how do people who are there see this idea of symbolic ancestry? Um, and, you know, for that matter, actual Germans, you know, how, sure. how would they see <laughs> my symbolic ancestry with them? You know, like, I'm just so curious about the people that we are connecting ourselves to. Yeah, I think. And what their perspective do they think we're nuts? <laughs> I, you know, I think that societies that um, have not had a lot of migration and, and you know, communities that fair, feel very clear about what their identity is and, um, you know, uh, maybe maybe think we're nuts, um, but also maybe are just look at us with a kind of profound curiosity, like, you know, why is this so interesting to you, which is one thing that something that one can do when you don't feel um, as many of the people I've spoken to do this kind of profound sense of loss or mystery about the past. Um, so that's partly true. I mean, you asked also about the, 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 the asymmetry. So, you know, I, there's, there's mixed, there's mixed, I think there's, we have mixed evidence. So on the one hand, um, we know that uh, in the case of African-Americans who have ancestry that traces to West Africa, there are several West African nation states that are engaged in trying to, um, you know, foster and encourage kind of heritage tourism on the part of African-Americans, um, you know, Ghana, Sierra Leone and other places. So, um, you know, so they're actually trying to make that exchange a little bit more even by sort of creating, and this is the most cynical read, a kind of circuit of capital that comes back to the African continent, to West African countries to which people have been matched. Um, but, you know, they're on the other hand, you know, I write about um some cases of these revelation videos that people do on YouTube. And um, one of the, the interesting things there is that, you know, it's a social media space. So you have all sorts of people responding to um, the videos. And in several cases, um, responding to a video of a, in particular, of a young African-American man who um, did Y-chromosome testing um, and mitochondrial DNA testing. So the Y-chromosome is patrilineage. And on that line was um, g- received a result that was in Western Europe. Um, but he's uh, he looks like an Afro. He's phenotypically, as we say, he looks like an African-American man. Um, and so, you know, you have people writing saying, you know, uh, and I think one of his um, writing from Africa saying, you know, you're not African. To be African means that, you know, you participate in the community, you know, rituals, um, or you share these values, or you go back to the community, or the community understands you as being part of this community. It's not just what you say. So, you know, there is some kind of contention about the role that an- that genetics can play and being determinative of ancestry. So certainly as American consumers, we can say, aha, I've got this test. You know, in my case, um, you know, I am Cameroonian. I'm Bamaleke from Cameroon. Um, but, you know, whether or not the people from Cameroon, people in the Bamaleke community would accept that as, you know, a valid um, sort of marker of my identity, you know, as it's an open question. Well, it, it- comes down to this question of like, what is the difference between where we came from and who we are, right? Like, which it seems, which seems like a very merged thing in American culture in a lot of ways, but is not necessarily. Yes. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Um, It's, uh, you know, where we came from and who and where we are and who we are, you know, Um, is part of the kind of American mythology. Um, And it's part of what's under under kind of contestation right now. I mean, you know, um, 
in this new presidential administration. So, you know, the American mythology is that we come from all over and uh, we can celebrate all of these differences, but fundamentally we're all American, right? Um, and uh, so, you know, what genealogy allows, I think, is a playing out of that. So I do this as, you know, a Western and most many, most cases American consumer. Um, and even as I want to get more specificity about where on the continent of Africa my ancestors might have come from or where uh, and, you know, Western Europe they might have come from, um, you know, I understand myself also often to be part of this larger project. Um, so it will be interesting to see if there's any kind of shift in the coming years around genealogy at a moment where there's been a kind of refusal of, of what American identity is, right? That everyone who comes here, um, you know, is not necessarily American or not American in the same way or um, might be, you know, part of what's been so interesting to watch the, you know, interesting and, and um, disheartening um, to watch with the executive order around sort of migrants and green card, ho card holders is that people who thought they were American, you know, or had claims to American are having that thrown into question. Um, and so, you know, that could make people look more for to origin stories to where they're from, right? Or could um, encourage people to really uh, to sort of downplay the stories of where they're from and sort of over-invest in a kind of American narrative. So, um, yeah. There's a really interesting quote in your book that I liked a lot. Um, if I can just toss this out as a quote, like the rope with the slip knot, genes do not have inherent meaning outside of social and political context, but both signify so much. And I think I was thinking about that particularly in the context of these movements of the scientists march that have kind of been happening where these scientists want to kind of go out and march in Washington and their you know their motivations differ from person to person but they're starting these debates among scientists about whether or not science is inherently social or political and you know clearly reading your book clearly it is um, but then you have people like Steven Pinker who see science as existing outside culture and outside politics, and they would say that's incorrect. And I'm curious about what you're thinking watching these debates happen. It feels like um, it, it feels actually like a playing out of, of things that have happened before. So, you know, we've had other movements. We've had um, anti-nuke scientists. We've had, you know, social movements like Science for the People, which included scientists and, you know, uh, sort of lay people activists. Um, you've had uh, the Association of Concerned Scientists that were concerned about the atomic bomb and nuclear warfare. So there have been scientists who explicitly engage the social sphere and the political sphere um, over the course of the 20th century. And I think we've sort of forgotten about their, those stories that, you know, that we've settled into um, a, a story about science that is, you know, one that's Pinker-esque, right, that says that, um, uh, you know, science stands out of all of these things. But, you know, how can it possibly stand out of all of these things? Even if you just look at the interior of science, if you look at the, the data we have on um, funding and NIH and NSF grants and how those are disparate by social networks, like if you're not in the right social network or if you don't have the right mentor, and there's also disparities by gender and race, I mean, so even to get 
a research project in, off the ground and a research agenda started, right, the interplay of, you know, science and inequality is already happening. Um, and that, you know, scientific laboratories, if you're talking about, uh, you know, folks who work in labs and don't do theoretical work are folks from all over the world. And, you know, you're dealing in a laboratory, sure, with people who are just working at a bench, dealing with um, DNA assays and, you know, going about their work. But, you know, folks are often from all over the world. You're having to deal with sort of language issues um, in the laboratory often. Um, we now know that um, many of our laboratories are also dealing with visa issues and that, you know, a process that um, up until fairly recently, I think, ran fairly smoothly. But, you know, all of these are examples are just to suggest just in the very sort of infrastructure of science. There's geopolitics. There's sociality throughout. And then you get to the question of what questions scientists ask and who gets to ask them. Um, and, you know, that's sort of social and political as well. So that's not to say that scientists aren't, um, uh, you know, as individuals aren't people who can ask questions about the world that aren't necessarily politically driven, right? And I think that science has um, some kind of norms that are consistent internally to it that help with that. Um, but I, 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 you know, I have to say, I, I think it's it's a bit ridiculous to say that any social practice can stand outside of, of sociality, um, including science. So, you know, it's interesting, uh, the science march, because it's, um, uh, there's, you know, both an older generation and a younger generation of scientists. Um, and, but also, you know, I think when sociologists of science like me sort of come back to this moment and think about the science march in retrospect in five years or 10 years, you know, we're also dealing with um, in the hard sciences and also in the social sciences to some degree, a profound crisis of legitimacy. And so part of, you know, and so part of what a science march uh, or even a social science march, if there will be such a thing, is trying to shore up is the very legitimacy of the work that they do. So it's both. Um, so while it's important that we're keep keeping climate change data and that we really hold the line about there being true things that one can say about the world, um, you know, it's also the case that this social movement of scientists is, you know, trying is also working to shore up it, the legitimacy of the profession, which, you know, I think we both can agree is a, is a very important and in fact, urgent goal. Um, but it also is a, a goal that's um, important to the profession. The the social aspect, I mean, the, the social and the cultural and all of that, it impacts what data we have, too. I mean, I, I was thinking about the the way that these databases, the data they don't have in them, right? That like you were talking about how there's hundreds of Nigerian ethnic groups that aren't in the database. Um, and you have other companies besides African ancestry where the data from people who aren't white Europeans is really limited to begin with. And I think of somebody like Beulah in your story who believed that she was Khoisan and kind of had this identity built around that. And then her test failed to show that. But, you know, the samples just don't exist to match her, you know, even if she were, so she still might be, but it just might not be there to see. And that made me also wonder, I guess, sort of how this issue comes up in other applications of DNA analysis, this issue of like, what we don't have, or what we do have. Because, you know, we know that these forensics databases 
that the police keep that you're talking about in your book, where they're starting to collect DNA from people for minor violations. And we know that minor violations are something that disproportionately affect black and brown people. You know, you're more likely to get pulled over for the stop and frisk type of thing. Um, what is it going to end up meaning if those DNA databases are more heavily weighted towards one population, towards black and brown people, while something like ancestry is more heavily weighted towards white people. I mean, it just, it seems like that starts to put another one of those layers of the social and the cultural into science, that you can get an answer out of that and still have it be wrong, even if it is correct to the data that you have. Yes. um, You know, this is a really key issue. Uh, I write a little bit um, about the relatively new phenomenon of familial searching in the criminal justice system in which um, partial matches can be, uh, they can use that as um, evidence to go and pursue suspects. So this was used in um, in the U.S. in the, the, the Bind, Torture, Kill um, serial killer case and also in the Grim Sleeper case in Los Angeles more recently. So, you know, on the one hand, you say, you know, it's great if we can use these techniques to you know, find people that we might not have found otherwise um, and to solve cases um, and to get, you know, criminals off the street that we might not have been able to do otherwise, great. Um, But for the kind of few successes, we are, as you suggest, Maggie, putting thousands and thousands of people into criminal databases, depending on the jurisdiction, sometimes just because they're stopped, um, or sometimes if they're arrest- arrested, or sometimes if they're convicted. And, and you know, many of these stages, one has can have the possibility of having the DNA turned, uh, re- you know, thrown out of the database. But to accomplish that is is difficult and you have to have the resources and also the tenacity to go back and back again to whatever authority, you know, police authority you're dealing with to get them out. There was a case um, that the reported in San Diego, my hometown of San Diego earlier this month that the ACLU is working on in which um, five African-American teenagers were stopped in San Diego, San Diego and, uh, DNA was taken from them and they got them to sign over their Fourth Amendment rights. And it wasn't, you know, it's not clear that the boys even understood what was going on. And in the end, um, I don't think any of them were convicted or arrested for anything. And so their DNA was supposed to be, I mean, these are minors, you know, you know, so they didn't have parental consent, you know. Um, and uh, so the ACLU is now working on this case to get the DNA out of the databases. Um, because there's no evidence that it's no longer in the database, you know, and part of the it seems that the, the sort of argument of the state is that, you know, oh, if they're not criminals now, they will be someday. So we might as well just, you know, take the take the DNA and hold it until that happens. And so when you have a disproportionate targeting of folks of color and men of color in particular in these databases, it precisely, as you say, gives the lie to the the sort of neutrality and accuracy of science of, of genetic analysis in this in this case. So, you know, is this genetic sample at this case, and does it match somebody in our database? You know, like we we understand that, but how does the sample come to be in the database? How does this person come to be the target of police scrutiny versus other people? Um, you know, it's a really kind of complicated scene. And, you know, the database issue is key also, and just shifting gears a little bit to um, to healthcare, 
uh, in the Precision Medicine Initiative that President Obama, you know, began um, a few years uh, before he left office, um, in which we're trying to accumulate um, a million data points, you know, a million genetic profiles so that we can have databases that allow us to say something more robust about genetic predispositions for various kinds of disorders. Um, and, you know, part of the mission of that work um, is to get a more diverse database, understanding that, you know, that makes uh, the, the accuracy of the, the sort of um, the statistical work uh, more robust, and that also that we need to include lots of different types of genetic profiles if we're going to have therapies that are both, you know, um, uh, that are more precise. One of the things that I think is really powerful about this book is sort of the question of, you know, what do we risk and what do we gain by imbuing DNA with these magic powers of truth? And one of the questions that about this that sort of stood out to me, and I, I don't know whether I'm making a connection here that actually makes sense or not, but... You know, at one point, you're writing about Nicholas Wayne, who was the former New York Times science writer who kind of went on to write a book about racial determinism of behavior. And at one point, you start writing about his work far back before he wrote this book, where he was being particularly disappointed that the study of the human genome hadn't yielded these magic medical genomics breakthroughs. And so it was interesting to me then that he went on to sort of fill the genome with this other magical meaning of behavioral determination, almost like he really wanted DNA to mean something and have these practical deterministic if then answers about ourselves. And when it didn't do that for medicine, he went looking for other ways to give it that meaning. And I, I'm sure I'm reading way too much into this, but I'm curious about like what your thoughts are. You know, is there is a path like Wade's something that's likely to happen if we're setting out with these expectations of essential of essentially de deterministic miracles from DNA analysis? I think that's a, a really spot on reading, and I think that that the reading that you suggest is really borne out by you know reading over many years his work. Um, you know, I think that you know the book. Um, uh, his book that that you're referencing comes, you know, at the end of his career as a journalist, and um, it becomes a kind of punctuation point on a long career. And I think it's not a, a terrible kind of armchair psychology um, stretch to suggest that, um, you know, he did want to be able to say something more definitive, you know, something that you don't have to have three sources to say, um, something that you can sort of extrapolate from, uh, you know, a paper and move on. And what becomes so striking about his work, I mean, a lot of the, the journal, his journalism was about, you know, studies of individuals or, you know, uh, you know, various sample sizes of um, uh, genetic um inquiry. Um, and in the book, he's trying to make, in part, in some places, claims about whole nation states, right? So he's trying to say, you know, this country behaves this way because they are, um, you know, genetically predetermined to do so. And so, you know, it, it, this is where it just really goes off the rails, you know? I mean, I... Um, where you just think, like, is there no, that, that we're not, you know, that he's not even willing to entertain any kind of answer, another answer or a more complex answer. I mean, you know, part of my evolution as, a, as an individual scholar, researcher, citizen has been 
that I've come to really actually appreciate that genetics actually plays some part in a lot of parts of our world, you know? So I'm not, you know, kind of putting my head in the sand and saying like, no, you know, everything's political, everything's social. Um, there is a valence of genetics that matters in the world, but to sort of say that, you know, an entire nation state that's sort of borders have moved, you know, you know, things have changed over time, different language groups, different, I mean, you know, all sorts of all of those dynamics can be um, reduced to a kind of characteristic nature of a society and that this characteristic or stereotypical nature of this society, be them um, industrious or not industrious, you know, thrifty or not thrifty, uh, it can be reduced to, to genes is just, um, uh, you know, I think it's just bad logic, frankly. Um, but it does give, it did give the big bang that, you know, some of the more careful articles had to give and, and that, that Wade wrote. And indeed, you know, the, the article, one of the, the pieces that I cite, um, in which he is voicing the humility of medical researchers about what they've not been able to accomplish with the genome, I think to, was very surprising to me to read that because he and his work, um, and I think, you know, a lot of science writing does this is always trying to show us what the bleeding edge is, you know, um, and I think rightly so. Mm. Um, but sometimes, you know, the bleeding edge doesn't go anywhere. Um, and uh, so, hmm. yeah. My final question, you know, you at one point in the book, write That in the late 1990s, scholars were really worried that we were in danger of becoming a society ruled by genetic determinism. And you've been following this for a really long time. Where do you think we've come down on that spectrum today? Were those scholars right? Sure. And I was uh, among those scholars. Um, sure. Those scholars are partly right. I mean, we have more genetics is involved in more sort of processes in the world and, 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 and more involved in how we think about how things happen in the world than ever before. Um, and so there is, you know, the, there's an anthropologist, Abby Lipman, who um, coined this term geneticization. So geneticization is happening, and it's happening in more facets of uh, more quadrants of the world than ever before. But I also appreciate um, that, you know, geneticists and social researchers are also getting better at suggesting the nuance and complexity of all this. So if you're looking at um, studies of gene expression, if you're looking at the epigenome and epigenetics um, and other things that suggest to us that the genes themselves, you know, do nothing in the world and that they, the way that they act in the world or their power is about these contexts. And in the context of my research, the contexts are both like physiological contexts and, you know, different sort of pressures that, um, you know, a bi one's biological system comes under that makes genes express in, certain, in a certain way. But I think you could also extrapolate that as a metaphor that's about um, the context that we place genes and be them about ancestry or healthcare or the criminal justice system that also give them power to express certain things in the world. Thank you so much. This has been really enlightening. I'm really happy to get to talk to you. Maggie, it was such a pleasure to speak to you and thank you for uh, the time. Okay, that was Maggie Kurth-Baker talking to Dr. Alondra Nelson about the social life of DNA. Thanks to our producers, Chadwick Matlin and Jody Avergan. And thanks to Tony Chow and Jorge Estrada for production assistance. Katie Ferguson was our editor. Kara Chin is our intern. And the What's the Point music is by Hrishikesh Herway. As you know, we do this podcast every month in the What's the Point feed. Please subscribe now so you don't miss an episode. If you have feedback for us, please send it to podcasts at 538.com. 
I'm Blythe Terrell. Thanks for listening.